This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we're talking on Dreamland to Rachel Harris. Rachel is with us from an island off the coast of Maine where she lives what must be a lovely life in um, almost total isolation. Uh, I envy you tremendously, Rachel. Rachel is the author of most recently Swimming in the Sacred, and we're going to be exploring deeply today the wisdom of the psychedelic underground. And there is, in spite of all the changes that are taking place, there is a psychedelic underground and uh, still, and we'll find out exactly why that is. And over the course of the interview, and what is it about? What are psychedelics about? Uh, why is it that things are changing so much in the world of, uh, of uh, the psychedelic community? Um, the use of ethanogens or psycho psychedelics is really coming out of the closet. Uh, it is beginning to be, MDNA is beginning to uh, be treat, used for treatment of PTSD. And uh, there is a long history, though, that is still underground. It's a history, basically, of women and women's spirit. Uh, it goes all the way back to ancient Greece, and I would suspect farther. I think it probably goes back to the to the women uh, who served the goddess Isis in Egypt a very long time ago. Rachel, wake, welcome to Dreamland. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here with you. Well, thank you. And uh, just to, uh, Rachel previously wrote a book called Listening to Ayahuasca. And can you tell us, let's go back a little bit to your life uh, with your mother and to some of the things that made you who you are, because you are a remarkable human being. And not only, I know, yes, don't, <laughs> don't do that. That's, 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 that's Western induced false modesty. You should not, not. Do oh, this. sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but we're all afraid of, we're all afraid of letting others see who we truly are. And it's first, and it's a fascinating uh, thing because it's, it's culturally induced and it's not real. But anyway, we're going to be talking more about underground psychedelic guides who are very much part of our world and who help people in extraordinary ways and have been doing this for thousands of years. It's nothing new. But let's still talk a little bit about your early days. And I was so taken by your your description of the plane trip that you took with your mother and rising above the earth. And I don't think you've ever really come down. So tell us a little about that, <laughs> that plane trip. That's hilarious. Well, this 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 was my mother's brilliant idea of what to do with young children for their birthdays. We didn't have balloons and cake. Um, we we walked, we were living in the country and we walked to a big field where there were small uh, propeller airplanes. So, you know, this was maybe 1950 because I was very young and my mother did not go on the plane with us. She put her two small children on the airplane as their birthday present. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps she was trying to get rid of us. But, you know, you could pay for a plane ride for 15 minutes on this propeller plane, and it would go up and circle around the field and come down 15 or 20 minutes later. And it was very exciting. I loved it. And so this was part of the match between me and my mother. You know, parents and children don't always match psychically. And this was a really good match. I was never afraid. It was always exciting. And I knew even back then as a four or five-year-old child that this was a different perspective, that I could look down and see the house where we lived and see the fields. And, and the concept of a different perspective has really stayed with me as something that's very important. And I think it's part of what psychedelics give us is a different perspective on ourselves, on our issues, um, and on our lives. 
And why is that, if I may ask? You know, I, I don't, you know, you ask why, why are psychedelics so big all of a sudden? Some of it is because the data that's coming in, researching them is so strong, but the, so positive to relieve symptoms of depression and PTSD. But the basic, the philosophical question and scientific one, how does this work? We don't, we don't really know. And the, 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 the going, the current hypothesis is that, well, if you give a high dose of psilocybin and you have a mystical experience, that's more likely to lead to a positive therapeutic outcome, reduced symptoms of depression. But we don't really know how, how these entheogens really change us and how they really work. And the women who have been working underground um, they're the ones who are most experienced in the West, modern Western world. I mean, certainly shaman of, of all different indigenous cultures know more. They've been working with these types of plants for scent, for dec eons is the right word. But the, the underground women in the Western culture have the most experience. But we still don't really know what's really happening that leads to a shift in the way you are in the world. So I, I could make an interesting contrast between the the underground women and, and uh, for instance, the John Hopkins team that is giving the strongest data on the mystical experience. And one of the women said, <clears throat> so you have a mystical experience, so what? It's how you learn to work with energy. And that's about everyday living, how you work with energy, your own and other people's, how you work with energy in the world. That's the question. Well, that's terribly important. It's, it's absolutely critical. It's that, that question is, hmm, there Water. she is again. <laughs> there she is again. She's sitting on a beautiful island off the coast of Maine. Oh, how I envy you. Of course, but I have I'm, to tell you, I'm not all alone out here. There's a very strong community. So, oh, I, think, I know. You know, five or six people have already dropped in on me this morning. If I count <laughs> the little children. <laughs> well, I'm in I'm in Santa Monica, California, which is also a lovely place. Uh, yes. No one's going to drop in on me though, uh, no. and it's not that kind of a place. But I will it's have kind of a lovely evening with some friends later on. So. Good. Uh, so it's not it's not so bad. I'm not complaining. Let me put it that right. way. I could be living in a much much more difficult part of the of the country or the world right now, as right. many people are. Right. Uh, so the it, let's let's explore a little bit the importance of feminine energy in particular in this in this journey of the spirit you know i was thinking as i read the book that uh it it, we, it goes this must go very far back you mentioned the elisunian mysteries and uh so much of what was happening in greece is a a reflection or an adaptation of rites that have disappeared from memory that were taking place, I think, in Egypt. And I have a feeling that that especially the the psychedelic substances probably came from Egypt and maybe from ISIS uh, worshipers, meaning that this would go back a very long time. Women ran the Eleusinian mysteries. We know this pretty clearly. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about these mysteries? And they, mixed, they mixed the drink. They had the recipe. Tell us about this. What is this recipe? Well, you know, we don't really know, but um, the, the, what they have, from what they have found archaeologically is it's a mix of um, psychotropic plants with, that they put in wine, that they mixed with wine. And so that's what led to the, to the learning how to die before you die. And these were secret initiations. You could not talk about your experience um, on, on pain of death. So it, it had, you know, it was also underground in a way. Uh, so well, these literally, were the, the 
it, it was that in the temple, the, these mysteries took place underground. Underground, it's literally true. And, and one of the women says, even if these medicines become legal, I would continue to work underground because that's where the sacred container is. So it's metaphorical and it's literal. It's an interesting combination of underground. But, you know, the, I, I, I chose to only interview women. I mean, partly because women's voices are still neglected. We know that. But also because the women had the most vibrant relationship with the plant medicines. And uh, the, the, you know, I had, I, uh, I, I had not interviewed, but I'd had long talks with some of the men working underground. And they didn't seem to have that same intimate relationship to the plant spirits. So that was, those were the couple of reasons I, I, I limited it to women. I felt they, it, they, they were my most important audience. I mean, I sent them, the women I interviewed, I sent them the manuscript before I gave it to my editor. I, I really only cared about what, th that they felt I did them justice. The, um, this is so interesting to me because one of the things that has been pushed in recent years is that there's not much difference between men and women uh, psychically, psychologically, but this isn't true. It's very far from true. Um, I was very amused that you used the word mansplaining in your book once or twice, which <laughs> always makes me laugh. Term. That's a new term. <laughs> my um, my uh, goddaughter, Amy, is very conscious of mansplaining. And fortunately for me, I've never been accused of it by her, which hopefully <laughs> means I'm not a mansplainer. But... <laughs> The different energy of men and women is profoundly important here. And we have to recognize that. You know, Timothy Leary, who comes up in your book, was a classic example of a man uh, on, a, on a journey that should have been guided by women, but wasn't. Oh, wouldn't that have been a different story? Tell us a little bit about Tim Leary. I knew him only vaguely. Well, I, I didn't know him, uh, 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 but I do know his stepson. And his stepson told me that, uh, that Timothy Leary, as his stepfather, told him, do not do marijuana or any of the psychedelics until you're in your 20s. So despite his public persona of, you know, LSD for everybody, he was giving very solid neurological advice to his own stepson to wait until your brain is ma matured to not introduce these chemicals during the, the developing process of, of the brain. So it's, it's very interesting to get that uh, family story. Yeah. So he was, he was more responsible at home than he was in public. Yes, you could yeah. say that. But yeah. I, did, I did spend, you know, I'm writing a book about women, but I spent a good six months on Al Hubbard. And I was really taken with his story. It's very hard to get accurate information about him. And I, I, I don't know that any is really available because he was such a rogue character and so secretive. But he was known as the Johnny Appleseed of LSD in the 1950s because he had wrangled thousands of doses of LSD out of Switzerland in the early fifties. And he was distributing it everywhere, um, you know, to people at a high level in the Catholic church and so on. But he <laughs> knew, oh yeah. And what, business what happened to them? Did <laughs> well, the Pope take it, do you suppose? No, no, he didn't get to the Pope. He wanted to, but he didn't get to the Pope. Um, but he had had early spiritual experiences as a, as a, as a youngster with the Virgin Mary. And uh, so he had, I, I don't know how else to say this, he had his own personal relationship with the Virgin Mary that he had seen when he was out in the wilderness growing up in Kentucky. And uh, so he recognized when he took his first LSD trip that this was a spiritual experience because he'd had the spiritual experiences as a child. And so he developed an approach to these journeys that he would lead people on that would turn them inward, that it was a focus inward. And so he would use music 
and art and, and earphones and eye shades. So it's all about turning inward to enhance the, the inner spiritual experience. And that protocol is still what's used today in all the research studies. So he deserves a lot of credit. Oh yeah, he certainly does, and he was an enigmatic figure by by yes <laughs> necessity. LSD was not illegal. No, when, no, it was still legal in those days. It became illegal later. Much later, yeah, he was actually legal. Um, but I, it's those early childhood experiences, and I I know you would understand that too. That uh, and it's interesting how many people in this world um, of psychedelics and and depth psychology and altered states of consciousness. If you ask them, they, they report very interesting experiences when they were very young. And that's kind of how I introduce that experience with my mother's idea of a birthday party for a child. That yeah. this was an early, you know, from, if her, I, I know for my brother, it was nothing, but for me, it was an early awakening of a different way of seeing things. And See, that, looking down and seeing those hollyhocks must have been. <laughs> she, when she took off, she was flying over a familiar place, her own neighborhood, and she could yeah. see all of these things from above. And from above, and that happens in journeys too. In all kinds of journeys, you see things differently. Well, you know the secret of the Sphinx, which we talk about from time to time on this show, is this: the Sphinx has the courage of the lion. That's the claws in the front. The yeah. strength of the bull, that's the haunches in the back. The tell intelligence of the man, that's the head. And when all three are working in harmony, the wings spread and you rise above the world. <laughs> and you see wonderful. it objectively. And we'll that's... get to that a little bit, that objective vision a little bit, because you've experienced it in not an MDMA, but an MDA journey that you took. It, and yes, this is what... I don't want to talk about it just now, but we will okay. later. Uh, in any case, this whole journey of the of the psych this whole psychedelic journey, insofar as it is a sacred journey, is about spreading our wings and becoming the Sphinx in harmony with oneself and the earth. And I was, I, I noticed in the, the, the book, let me see my notes, the sense of the friendship with the earth that you experienced uh, in one of your trips. And I'm not seeing this written down in my notes, unfortunately, perhaps you can remind us of it, of the, the, um, uh, you felt such an affinity. I guess it was at Esalen when you were in the lying there in the sunshine above the fog line at Esalen. I know Esalen very well right, myself, right. And, and you were feeling the the warmth of the sun and the presence of the earth. And I thought she's discovering that our earth is our friend. Oh, that's a lovely way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. That was an, so, so I had, because I was living at Esalen for a number of years, I, in the late sixties, I did have access to good quality um, psychedelics. And it's always, yeah. important, it's always important to know the source and, and that this is a, a safe uh, entheogen. <clears throat> and I want to, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to stress that, that you, you, you know what you're taking, which is not so easy to do in, in our culture. But um, yes, and this is one of the qualities that often emerges after a, a psychedelic journey is a, cl a closer relationship to nature and, and, and wanting to make a difference with ecology and conservation. It's a different relationship to the planet, not dissimilar to, you know, uh, I, f I forget the exact term of what the astronauts experienced when they um, er, the early astronauts, when they looked back and saw the Earth, this blue marble in the in the blackness, yeah. the I, I, there's a special term for that that I can get you later. But it's the sense of loving the planet and being so grateful for this blue green planet. The um, um, uh, 
Edgar Mitchell founded the Noetic Sciences Institute because of that experience. Yes. I knew Edgar pretty well, and we spent many a lot of time talking together. He was sort of iffy about me. Like, I'm sure you know Mike Murphy at Esalen, who was if, iffy about me, too. A lot of people are iffy about me because I don't fit. <laughs> no, but, you don't you know, fit. I don't fit at all. No, not in any any well, any anyway. This is a real challenge. We don't our culture doesn't know what to do uh with experiences that are real and metaphorical. Uh, uh, incidentally, there's a beeping going on. Is that coming from your end? Oh, you know, that's mine because I don't know how to stop the notifications. Okay, well, we won't worry about it. I okay. I don't know how to stop the notifications either. So, oh, but you. just folks, just know that it's nothing mysterious. A lot of weird stuff happens on the show, but this isn't weird. No, it's, it's, it's lack there. of my computer sophistication. Listen, it's not mysterious. We to, I'm always hectored to take a break early because otherwise, people people dip in and they don't uh, they don't get the the. But I'm terrible about breaks and everything else. I'm supposed. I'm going to take a break now, though. Them, Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic, says, leads the way, and it's best that we listen, because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record, says, groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them. Available as an audiobook on audible.com, Apple Books, and Amazon. Available as a hardcover and paperback everywhere. Available as a Kindle on amazon.com. And you can go to unknowncountry.com and order all of my books. Where are we going? Where have we come from? What secrets have been buried? What secrets have been lost? What is the truth about the Close Encounter experience? You have never heard any of this before. Them. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition, very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it. And I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion. Listen to it. Read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. We're talking to Rachel Harris. Her books, Listening to Ayahuasca and Swimming in the Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground, where there is a lot of wisdom. And uh, you can join that. You can get gain that wisdom, actually, in this world. Uh, in to some extent, even legally now. But, you know, we live in a world that just uh, the Western world seems to hate the spirit and, and fear its richness. 
and fear the earth and want to essentially to, I don't know how to put it, but to, to bury it in concrete. What is it? What is wrong with our world, Rachel? You oh. try to try to explore that. I don't expect a five-word answer, don't expect, but well, don't expect any answer. I I asked the same question, um, slightly differently. Uh, how do we find a new relationship to the depths of who we are and our relationship to this planet? How do we find a new relationship? And the way it comes up with psychedelics, with entheogens, is how do we in the Western world hold these sacred medicines? And so far, we're holding them illegally and medically <laughs> and with uh, uh, financial entrepreneurs. This is how we're doing it. Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> they know. are illegal because they are sacred. You can always find in this culture a, an av a, a path into the sacred by looking at what is illegal. And in this case, it, these plant substances are illegal for that reason. Let's talk about a little bit about their their consciousness. Uh, you 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 know enough about uh, this to listen to ayahuasca and write a perfectly beautiful book about that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about, give us something of your view of a very different consciousness that is nevertheless part of the love of the earth and the justice of the earth? You know, the, the women are a unique group. I've called them spiritual warriors. Because, I mean, sort of like the Sphinx that you related, they're a combination of being very strong. They're not, they're afraid of nothing, is the way I've been told to say it. They're afraid of nothing. And, uh, and they're also very permeable. So they're very open to their own inner shifts of consciousness. So um, this is a, a, a psychological variable that's measured by the, uh, an absorption scale. So they're able to, it's a, it's a test of hypnotizability. They're able to shift from everyday reality easily into other states of consciousness and expanded states of consciousness with and without the medicines. So this is, um, I, I, I do not have their courage, but I do have their permeability. I have their absorption. I have that. And so after spending like a whole day with some of them, I would I would hardly be able to feel safe driving home. I would be so altered. And there were no medicines involved. You know, we had chicken salad for lunch. It was there were no entheogens around. But I would be like, oh, can I really drive home? Can I find my way home? And so they're 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 able to enter into other realms uh, very easily. That's right. And does this come from, let me, let me ask you this. Why does a person come to this? Why did these women come to this? Well, I, I know the question. It's a good psychological question. You're asking, did they become so permeable, so open to altered states because of their use of the medicines? Or did they come to the medicines because they were naturally like this? And this is what led me to the childhood spiritual experiences they were open to altered states from the time they were very young. Um, and I think it's because of that that they found their way to the medicines. And just like Al Hubbard, they recognized that this was a spiritual journey and this matched what they had already experienced in their own childhoods. Something I want to just mention parenthetically to those of you who are listening. She is talking about Al Hubbard not L. Ron Hubbard, Thank a you. completely different person. <laughs> and this has nothing whatsoever to do with Scientology, just right. to be completely clear so we don't have any confusion. But I want to talk about the plants themselves because I think there is a level of consciousness there that we don't understand and that perhaps uh, they are much more than plants with certain chemical compositions as we would in the West would think that they might be 
doors. They might be something that opens doors in us, even doors to another world, because, you know, Rachel and I were laughing at, before the show about the fact that I actually, I've never taken psychedelics and I'm probably, the reason being, as my wife said, why spend the money, Whitley? You're, you're already there. You're already there. <laughs> right, exactly. But I have been physically moved physically into other worlds a couple of times, into literally physically. And uh, it was not a lucid dream at all. It was an actual motion into another world. And I just wonder if these plants aren't something much greater than we imagine them to be. We analyze them. We think of them as plants. We think of them as medicine. Are they beings, living beings of some kind that I mean, we know they're alive, but are they, do they have a consciousness so completely different from ours that we can't even see it for what it is? Is that possible? I, I think that's actually accurate. I, I think that's true. Um, the indigenous people talk about plant spirits, the spirit of the plant, but they, they also talk about plant teachers. So that puts the whole relationship in a in a in a in a in a in a very important context and it means if the if the plant spirits are teachers then we are students and this is um this is a very effective antidote to ego inflation which is you know one of my favorite lines in the book is ego inflation is alive and well in the psychedelic renaissance but the truth is that we are really humble students of these plant teachers. And, and one, one person who's a friend of mine who's been training with an indigenous shaman for six years, which is a traditional long apprenticeship, or the apprenticeships are very long. Um, he said, the question is, what do the plants want? And I thought that's, that's a brilliant way to put it. And Boy, so you, is that important. You get this real sense of acknowledging their sentience and their own consciousness and their capacity to be teaching. And, and with the help of a translator, one of the Peruvian shamans um, reassured me, he said, the plants are here to help you. And I thought it was such a reassuring statement. You know, folks, uh, if you're exploring this, never forget that phrase that question, what do the plants want? If you want your experience to be as rich as possible, find out what is wanted and what you can give back. And the doors will open to you unlike anything you've ever known before. Uh, Look, can, I, can I say something about that? Sure, of course, please. It's a beautiful statement. So the way the plants are held in the research studies and the medical community is how do they reduce um, psychiatric symptoms? And that's really valuable. People are really suffering and we want to help them um, when they've had, they've suffered with treatment resistant depression and PTSD for decades. That's really valuable. The women have a different way of looking at the plants and they use them with people over a lifetime so that there's a, a process of unfolding. Maybe someone comes for a journey once or twice a year, but for many years. And I always like to give the example of um, Albert Hoffman, who synthesized LSD. <clears throat> he lived to be 102, but at 97, he took his last LSD trip. So you get, you get a sense these these entheogens can open doors at different stages of life. They offer different kinds of initiation. And at 97, I'm sure that was a preparation for death and dying. For yes. um, Yeah, that's. And so the plants are teachers at, in different ways throughout a whole lifespan. And what the women look for when they're working with someone is not symptom reduction, but how do they re-enter their lives? What do they, how do they perceive their calling and what they can contribute back to their community and to the world? So it is exactly what you, you just said. We live in a culture that teaches us to be afraid to be loved. 
we are afraid to be loved in this culture. The plants don't know that, which is very fortunate for us. <laughs> what is it to be truly loved, Rachel? Because I think you have been. I can see it in your face. <laughs> you know, um, NYU has a study of using psilocybin with terminal cancer patients. And one of the women was, you know, a lifelong atheist. And um, after her psilocybin experience, she said, I, I don't know another way to say this. I'm still an atheist, but I don't have another way to say this. And I was rocked in the arms of God. Yeah, that, exactly. That's what it feels like to be loved. So she, she, that's a very lucky thing because so many of us, if you look at the, I recently saw an image of some man trying to get into a school with a gun in his hand. And there he was with this almost robotic fixed face of, a com of complete mad hatred. And I thought, we say, oh, well, he had his motive and he this and that is wrong. But why not tell the truth to ourselves? Why not say he is us? He is us. And what do we do, each of us? How do we find his way out of this trap? That's a big question, isn't it? It sure is. But it's a question that your entire community can address usefully. Most communities can't, but this community with its relationship to the earth, to the plants, learning that it, it's okay to be loved, you can. You don't have to go to him or anything. You just have to know this when you work with your teachers. I, I don't know how we move from here to there, but I, I think you're exactly right. And you, you weren't, if, if this is part of what the psychedelic community is charged with, I have to tell you, we're already not doing a very good job. I know. That's why I brought it up. Yes. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yes. I, I, you know, what I, I I was at the MAPS conference in, uh, it was in June in Denver. There were twelve or 14,000 people there. And um, since I've come back to my much quieter island, the phrase that's been staying with me is the world is too much with me. Um, it's, uh, I, I don't know how we find a place for the sacred in our culture. And it's, it's not even just about sacred entheogens. It's, by definition, that's but it's just a place for love and a sacred quality of love in, in our culture. You know, because I was, <clears throat> I was a child of the 60s and we thought everyone's going to drop acid and it'll change the world. And obviously that didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. So uh, I, I was a child of the 60s too. And I right. didn't ever drop any acid because of my, my brain being what it is. And, uh, uh, I, uh, I thought the same, I, I had the same hopes and the same dreams and I saw them fade away through the seventies and into the eighties. And then as if to shake me out of this dark reverie, the visitors showed up in my life and they <laughs> kicked me around a bit and, uh, things changed. But, uh, where do we go from here? It's, it's, it is a, another kind of journey on the inside of the spiritual path. In other words, the 60s were an attempt to bring all of this out into the public space. Timothy Leary, tune in, turn, uh, 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 turn, tune, turn on, turn on, tune in, whatever, uh, <laughs> all of that. And it became a game. And Soon in the Western world, it became a method of making money uh, for, and it became the illegal parts of it, which of course, I believe the laws are partly enforced by uh, people who want 
these drugs to be illegal so they can make money selling them. When I was growing up in Texas, the Baptist church was fighting always to keep Texas dry. And I thought to myself, they're, they're on the side of the bootleggers. <laughs> and some of the ministers were very friendly with some of the bootleggers because, of course, the the, the 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 more counties were dry, the more money the bootleggers made and the more they would contribute to the church. That kind of thing is going on now. Uh, for example, when uh, when uh, the uh, Roosevelt ended prohibition, the enforcers immediately looked for something else to prohibit because they do, we would not have jobs. And if you look at the history of marijuana legislation, you find that it begins then. Yeah. That, and this whole prohibition is, it's not about the, the, the medicines at all. It's about money and it's about jobs, the jobs of people who want to make money by this method of prohibit, of, servicing the prohibition of these things and the result is that thousands and thousands of people have had their lives ruined and put in jail yes yes and so now there's a movement to decriminalize especially the plant medicines but and certainly marijuana the states are decriminalizing marijuana so fewer people are being thrown in jail but that's not the same it's 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 not the same as answering how do we hold these medicines in a sacred way doesn't answer that question. Not at all. And, uh, you know, in Oregon, one of the first states to make the plant medicines legal, the requirement to be to be someone who sits with someone in a clinic even is a high school education. And, and, and of course, you know, some, some amount of maybe online study and very little experience. And the women I interviewed really had years and years of working on themselves and working with all the medicines at all different dosage levels. And that takes a good amount of time. And I realized that the new, the new batch of psychedelic therapists, even beyond the, uh, the high school education ones in Oregon, that we don't, they can't take six or seven years to work on themselves. So we're in a whole new realm that we, we've never been in before, and we don't have the cultural um, institutions to hold these medicines in a sacred way. Nor, yeah, because we, you know, we live in a society that generally denies the existence of the soul and is anesthetized to the sacred. You can't feel it. I mean, that tree behind you has been talking to me the entire time. Of course. I call it it the mother tree. Of course. And I thought as soon as I saw it, I thought she's brought a friend. Yes, exactly. And and I've been really enjoying it. Now, I can't say any words that that tree has told me, but I think that the tree has been a very big part of this conversation. Right. Now, we live in a culture that can't do that. The tree is a tree. It doesn't have any consciousness, any presence. But it does. Of course it does. Yeah. And of course it does. It also has a sense of humor, um, (laughs) among other things. It's a very complex old tree, and it has a joy of being that any Mm -hmm. anyone would have every right to envy. Um now you there's a there is an initiatory process that was profoundly understood, for example, in Eleusis, the, the, the uh, women who, who made those mysteries and understood the sacredness of the plants were initiated. What does initiation mean to you, Rachel? Well, you know, I, I just first of all want to say I'm not an anthropologist where the term really comes from anthropology. But as a psychologist, to me, it means a transformation that we when we enter the initiation process, we're one person. And when we come out the other side, maybe it's after a journey, after a ceremony, 
we are a different person. And this is related to seeing things differently and experiencing things differently so that it's a, a shift in who we are and in the way we relate to the world and the way we relate to our place in the world. What are we called to do to contribute? So there's a, a it's a, you know, it, it's in contrast to w one of my friends um, uh, talked about, a, he's a, in private practice and, and one of his clients, he referred him to a shaman in Peru and the man, the client actually went down and spent two weeks in the jungle at a retreat center. Now that takes a lot of courage. And, and then when he came back and returned to therapy, he said he was disappointed because he had the same personality. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, that's not, it's not the personality that gets transformed. It's our relationship to our personality that gets transformed. That is very beautifully said and take it to heart folks, because it's really important to understand. And in light of that, let's now talk about your MDA experience specifically. Do you, re you recall that in the book? Yes. Yeah. Well, talk about how you were separated, really, you were separated basically from your ego during that experience, through the MDA experience. Let me see if I can find it. Are you, you're talking about the early one when I was in my 20s. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Let me see if I can find, I can read for you the exact material. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, MDA. Let me see. One experience with MDA, similar but different from MDMA, remains vivid in my memory because it proved to be a turning point that has stayed with me my whole life. I was still living at Esalen and planned to swallow the pill and head to the lodge where a few hundred people were gathered for dinner and conversation. I was under the impression that this medicine was mostly a social experience of open-hearted communion. What better place than a buzzing lodge filled with kindred spirits? I lasted maybe half an hour. What sent me reeling back to my cabin was watching myself in conversation. I saw quite plainly that I wasn't really in the conversation. I was role-playing the conversation. I was totally on a people-pleasing feminine script. This reminds me now of a New Yorker cartoon where a professional-type older man is talking and talking through eight panels to a young woman who just listens intently saying nothing. In the last panel, the man exclaims to her, you're a very intelligent little woman, my dear. I remember that cartoon vividly. Oh, really? Oh, oh yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah, I've been reading it in New Yorker since I was about 10 um, <laughs> and being annoyed with it the entire time. And I still am. <laughs> but in any case. You're um, an avid reader. <laughs> yeah. That's but very this moment of separation where you saw yourself in function in the Gurdjieff work, this is known as self-observation. Oh, yes, right. Yes. Right. Oh, this is wonderful. You're raising this. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that experience and how it has resonated in your life, because it seems to me that this drug, MDA, if it can bring about separation from ego, that is so important because the curse of the West is ego. We have huge egos, out of control egos. No one is exempt from this plague. So tell us a little bit about MDA. This, is, this has been a theme in all your questions is, you know, when you, when you talk about how can these entheogens help us move out of the self-destructive path we're on, the, the the ego inflation is a is the a real problem. Yeah, um, exactly. So I agree with you. I can, I can tell you a story of you know I after I was at Esalen when I was twenty one for a number of years. So this right. is an unusual young adulthood at Esalen in the in the late sixties. But then I think it was in the in the nineties I went back and I led workshops and I remember leading this one workshop and 
I, you know, five day workshop, day three or so, a couple of the men in the group asked to speak to me. And they said, these are businessmen from LA, of course, coming up to Esalen. And now it's like early 90s or something. And they say to me, we can't figure out if you're a genius or you're a huckster, you know, you're a sham. <laughs> you know, all you're selling is awareness. <laughs> and I said, yes. That's what I'm selling. It's a very hard sell. <laughs> and what I was looking for was, you know, we did a lot of different things in the workshop, all of them designed to develop some slight little distance so the person can perceive themselves with a, just a little objectivity, a little distance, not be so identified with the ego. Um, this is so important. Yeah, the guys kept coming. They they finished the workshop with me. <laughs> well, I hope they. I hope <laughs> it helps them. Sure about me. <laughs> but yeah, yes, this is, this is what the medicines do. And in psychological terms, it's it's called meta awareness. There's a kind of a detachment that's not um, dissociative, but that's an increased self awareness. Whitley Strieber, we're talking to Rachel Harris. Her book, Swimming in the Sacred, her website, swimminginthesacred.com. We'll be right back. Did we misunderstand the teaching of Jesus? Perhaps a long time ago, perhaps almost as soon as he rose from the dead, we mistook him for something that he may not have been. But we do know one thing, he was one of us. His life and his resurrection reveal the power of the good in all of us. And his teaching shows anybody, whether they have religious beliefs or not, how to find that goodness and live it. Get Jesus a new vision. It's available as an audio book. It is available as a paperback and as a Kindle. Get it today. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us, in you? Unknown country. Join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com. There's no place like it in the world. We're talking to Rachel Harris, her book, Swimming in the Sacred, also listening to Ayahuasca, which we're going to talk about a bit now. Uh, uh, Rachel's website is swimminginthesacred.com. It's a beautiful website, and you can engage with Rachel through the website. You can also get her books there. And should you do this? Yes, you should get off your duff and actually do this because there's a journey here waiting for you. And it's a very important journey. It may change your life. And uh, because uh, we can escape from Maya's palace, my friends. Do you know what that is? Maya's palace is the ego. And we can escape from it. And our dear teachers, these plants, propose to help us in this journey. Tell us about listening to ayahuasca and what, why you wrote that book. Oh well, I was I was I was on a mission. I was told basically to write that book. So this was my own uh, development of my relationship to the plant, the spirit of ayahuasca as a teaching plant, and um, that you, you know during a ceremony. I was told to do a, a research study and that then th that led to a published article in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs. And then it led 
uh, to the book. Then this all happened over uh, about 10 or 12 years. So this was a lot of work that was behind that book. Um, and it was my own process of uh, understanding that I was uh, being guided by a, a plant spirit, by a plant teacher. And this is because this was out of my understand, out of my Western conditioning. It's been very hard for me to accept it. I mean, the, the two books together are a process of my learning to accept this other world, this other reality. And uh, I had a lot of help when I was writing that listening to ayahuasca. I felt I had a lot of help from the plant spirit. And one example was I, I have a chapter on the neurological research. And, you know, when I got my PhD, there was no neurological research on the brain. And so I wasn't entirely sure of that chapter. And I wanted it vetted by a cognitive scientist. And I was complaining to a friend of mine. I'm two people away from the Dalai Lama, but I don't know anyone who knows a cognitive scientist. And she says, I do. He's a professor at Berkeley and he drinks ayahuasca. Oh, <laughs> so now, really? now, of course, he's a dear friend of mine and he vetted that chapter for me. And so I really, I had a lot of, a lot of help, serendipitous things happen in the writing of that book. But with the Swimming in the Sacred book, I was on my own. I didn't have that kind of support. These women <clears throat> use all the medicines. They're not just dedicated to ayahuasca. They use all of them. And so I didn't feel like I had that help. After I was finished writing the book, I went back to my own shaman and my own ayahuasca ceremony. And I hadn't been there in a couple of years during the writing of the book. And so it was sort of a reacquaintance. And I, as I could, I saw this image of a, a thumbprint, you know, when they take the, the police take fingerprints to identify who you are. And so I saw a thumbprint in my inner vision. And I thought, oh, <laughs> she's thinking, you know, grandmother ayahuasca is identifying me, <laughs> figuring out who I am and, and welcoming me back. <laughs> and so that's, you know, that's my little story of feeling uh, that, of course, I reconnected and 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 that's my medicine, as we say in this in this world. You know, I it, it, someone asked me. You know, I just met someone at um, at the Maps conference in in June, and <clears throat> as just you know, hi, how are you? And what's your medicine? This is the question he asked me, and this only makes sense in the world of psychedelics. And I have an answer. I mean, ayahuasca is clearly my path and my inner relationship. Can you tell us a little bit about the MAPS conference, what MAPS means and uh, what the conference is about? Well, you know, it was about a bunch of different things. And I can, it's, uh, you know, this is the, the organization that has spearheaded the FDA approved research on uh, MDMA for PTSD. There's a lot of initials. The MDMA is ecstasy. Basically, it used to be a a, a, a rave drug, but it's very good at helping to work with treatment-resistant traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. And so this has been a study. I think they're in their third or fourth year, and the results are just incredible. And this is what's leading to the medicalization and the legalization of MDMA. And so this is a Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science is what MAP stands for. And um, so they had this huge conference and there were presentations I presented, of course, but in the background, there were entrepreneurs, you know, looking for big money, you know, investment money. There were, um, you know, people, wealthy people, philanthropists, willing to donate money or wanting to invest money. I mean, behind the scenes, there was a lot of money stuff going on that I was not a part of, but could see some of it happening. And some of the academics need money for their research studies. So there was an interesting subtext going on. And this is the story of the psychedelic renaissance is, is there's a lot of entrepreneurship and there's a, a lot of um, philanthropy. 
and some control that goes with that philanthropy. And unfortunately, none of this carries with it an awareness of the importance of separation from ego. In fact, the exact opposite, if anything. Well, they they would never admit to that. (laughs) No. Uh, No, I think not. Women guides. Why women? We've touched on this, but I want to you to address it directly. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you found that some male guides were not as empathetic. And it and you know, I don't I'm not a believer in the fiction that women and men are basically the same. Women and men are have different chemistry, different body chemistry. And it's very important to understand that because otherwise we can't take advantage of what the two, the differences between what the two sexes have to offer. So tell us about what women have to offer that's so special in helping people in these journeys. You know, the the, the one woman who's, I call her the uh, eldest of the elders, she's now about 90 years old. And she works with she she works with people over time, you know. So she works with people o- over many many years. People are are working with her throughout their lives, and she the the way she describes the relationship is a sisterhood. So it's this very intimate quality to the relationship. She's not a guru. She's not a therapist. She's not a shaman. She's an elder sister. And so you get a sense of the familial relationship involved. And this is how she sees herself in relationship to the people she's serving medicine to. And uh, I dare say the men don't don't talk like that. No. Not how they see things. (laughs) How different is their approach? Uh. I don't know that I can generalize. You know, one of the men um, who I've known for a long time and is is the spouse of one of the women I interviewed, and he was very supportive of not being interviewed, of, of saying that the women are different. And I quote him in the book because he had a theory about women have suffered and they understand suffering in their own bodies because of menstrual cramps every month and um, birth that they understand suffering in a visceral way that the men don't understand. And, uh, and he said they, they, um, that's one element that he talked about. And then another one was that they don't get in between the medicine and the, and the person on the journey, that they don't interrupt the medicine. They're, they're much more in a servant position, willing to serve the medicine, serve the journey, and that they're not interrupting. They don't have their ego involved that I'm the one healing you. And he said, you can interrupt uh, what's happening in these delicate situations by just offering somebody a box of Kleenexes. And that's true. This is something we knew at Esalen, uh, you know, back in the late 60s, to uh, trust the process and not interrupt it. And so here was this man with 40 years experience uh, leading ceremonies saying, yeah, talk to the women. They know more and they know differently. And they know intuitively in their bodies, in their bones. That's what they're that's what they're following. And it's not the same as some people who are working alone uh, saying, you know, I'm the mushrooms teach me, but they've never. They they don't have colleagues. They don't have any peer supervision. They've never been um, in collaboration with other people working. That's 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 not. These women are not just trusting their intuition all on their own. They're trusting their intuition as a result of their process of their own apprenticeships and collaboration with other people and and their own years of learning. So it's a very educated uh, intuition. Educated intuition, and that is such a beautiful and important phrase. Uh, Now, this um, you mentioned in the book that the quality of being sensitive to other realities appears in childhood. 
but it is, and it reminded me of that, of that poem of William Wordsworth, Ode on Intimations of Immortality, recollected from yes. early childhood. Yes. We come trailing clouds of glory clouds from glory. we know not where. Yeah. Um, the mystery. Yeah, but tell us about these people, these women or women who have either recaptured or never lost that, that uh, sensitivity to other realities. I, I would say they never lost it. And when they found the entheogens, they recognized, oh, this is where I've been traveling. Um, and they really... They really know that territory. I mean, these medicines are portals and gateways to other worlds. And these women really do know that territory. And the current psychedelic therapists who have had maybe a few journeys here and there, not with all the medicines, they don't know the territory in the same way. So it's harder without that experience in your body, in your own bones. How do you know how to travel with someone? So there's talk about, well, some sitters, people who sit, you know, are guide, that they need to take a small dose of the medicine they're serving. And I'm very much against this. I, I say if, if, if you want to work with someone who needs to also be under the influence, maybe at a very small level, that just means they don't have enough experience. Someone with a lot of experience knows how to track you in these other realms because they've been traveling in them their whole lives. Exactly. Well, we've come to the end of the uh, free part of the show. I'm sorry to say folks. And, and at the same time, so grateful to you for having spent time with me and with my guest, Rachel. Uh, and we will go on and we're going to be talking about the various worlds that the different plants offer access to and what exactly are these different plants and what are the their different chemical compositions and what kind of different journeys uh, do they have on offer because and I think I'm going to probably refer a little bit to Rick, Str Rick Strassman's work which uh, I'm sure Rachel is familiar with and we interviewed Rick on this show many years ago when he first started to do his work so anyway thank you as always for being with us and return next week to dreamland you've been listening to dreamland be sure to tune in again next week dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers our theme music is the o of pleasure by ray lynch unknown country was founded by ann streber our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>